Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you about the new Schmooze book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. Over the past 15 years or so, I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of couples, and I can't tell you the amount of times I look and say, why are you doing this? Do you understand what the relationship needs? Do you understand what your spouse is thinking? I put together this book to detail some of the really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, and the book has been extremely well received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to Chassan and college teachers, to marriage therapists, and the reviews have been really, really very heartening. If you'd like to get a copy, it's available on Amazon, it's available in your local bookstores, it's also available on theschmooze.com. If you purchase it on theschmooze.com, in addition to the hardcover book, you'll also get the audiobook as well as the ebook as a free bonus. If you'd like to do that, please go to theschmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll greatly benefit from it. Thank you. Tonight's discussion in Mitzvah is going to be, I, I hope to be very interesting. It's what I call a brief history of the human race. And let me begin with the following observation. The Derek Hashem explains to us that what you do, the actions that you do, the thoughts that you think, the words that you say, impact you dramatically. They change who you'll be forever. They change who you'll be in this world. But there's another change that we're not often focused on, and that is the change in me directly here, right now. So what happens is, let's say a person works on himself and develops certain good midos, certain good traits, and even things in Amuna, etc., that is a part of them. Now, obviously, it's a part of them that they carry in this world, and it's a part of them when they leave this world. But what's interesting to note is that when they have children, that becomes part of the genetic transmission. In other words, meaning if a person worked on a given trait, a given uh, midah, so what he gives over to his children is a greater form of a person. In other words, meaning the three partners in creating the vlad, mother, the father, and Hashem, each one contributes their part, and what the parents work on and what the parents develop becomes a part of the child. Now, we're not as attuned to that, but it, it certainly doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that children are often much like the parents. Part of that you could attribute to just simply genetics, in other words, what's genetically transmitted. <clears throat> but again, Derek Hashem explains to us that a big part of it is what the parent became. Okay, now, Adam Arishan was charged with being the progenitor, the first man, <clears throat> and he was charged with becoming the father of humanity. Now, he was put into perfect equilibrium, and in that state he was able to choose good or bad. He was supposed to choose good, sort of lock that in, then have children in this perfect state, and humanity would have began from there, and the human race would have continued. Now, Adamarishan did not do that. Instead of choosing right, he chose wrong. He was Makalkal. And he ruined the human race. No longer was Adam Rishon as great as he was. <clears throat> no longer was he anywhere near the same level. He became very, very diminutive, much smaller, I believe even physically in size, but certainly in terms of who he was, <clears throat> he became much, much less. And he was <clears throat> a fraction of what he had been. Now, the problem was <clears throat> that he was in a state now that having children would no longer be the type of children that could really be Kona Olam Haba, that could really be for eternity. And Hashem sort of waited for the right person to come along 
who could be the father of humanity. What happened was, <clears throat> during the first generations, uh, things turned far worse. Ten generations from Avram to Noah, eventually <clears throat> Hashem destroyed what was left, and Noah was supposed to be the next progenitor, the next father. He also didn't succeed in getting to that point. But during that time period, Hashem was sort of waiting for the person to become the father of humanity. The only person who reached that level was Avram Avinu. The Dorha Flaga was the sort of the ceiling of the nations. Up until that point, each person could really create what he was going to be, and that would become the sort of the Shorish, the tree. And everyone who would come out from that would be along that line. And at the Dorha Flaga, Hashem sealed that, um, that door. And whatever the nations reach is what they were. The only person who was Roy to be the Adam man that Hashem originally wanted was Avram Avinu. And Avram became the father of the Jewish nation um, and to be you know, the single man who reached that level. Now, Avram Avinu was nowhere near Adam Arishan. Adam Arishan was a state of near perfection. Adam Arishan reached a state of perfection that made him in the potential the eventual great man, meaning Avram was on a level where he had a neshama that was great, he could grow in this world, he could then, he would his body would go into the ground, he would go to Alman Neshamos, then during Tchiyas HaMesim, he would be reborn into the person who could become that, like Adam Arishan, to become that person who could for eternity enjoy proximity to Hashem. But again, he reached that level and he was to be now the father of people. But the point is that at that point, the nations were sealed. Until that point, they were very, very flexible, far more flexible than we are now. At that point, they were sealed. So let me introduce an interesting point that for many years troubled me, and I think it should trouble many people. There are vast differences amongst the nations. If you look at skin color, hair, if you look at body type, body size, if you look across the globe, there are vast, vast differences. <clears throat> Yet, they seem to be fixed. In other words, meaning if you go to the mainland China, you'll see generation after generation after generation, people look the same. They don't vary. They don't change. You go to Korea, <clears throat> generation after generation, certain body type, certain hair type, certain skin color, they don't change. You go to Iceland, <clears throat> you find that the races, the nations, I don't even want to the word race is incorrect, the nations are set. So the Derech Hashem explains that till the Dor HaFlaga, Hashem allowed people to really create that ultimate man, and they were very sort of flexible. Adam Rishon was the only one who reached the real level of perfection to be the father of what would be humanity, the Jewish nation. But all the other nations were able to form themselves and whatever nature they created was what they became the Shorish for. The 70 nations were formed at the Dora Flaga, and at that point they were fixed. So whatever they acquired in terms of their traits, their abilities, their inclinations, their intelligence, their <clears throat> midos was fixed, and that was sort of set in stone, and from that point on it remained. And that's why you'll see that the, the nations are fixed, unless they intermarry, uh, they remain the same. Meaning, if you take a person from <clears throat> with very, very fair skin uh, and bring them to a very warm climate, they remain the fair skin. They'll get tanned, 
but the children don't turn darker, the next generation doesn't turn, it's no longer flexible, the changes are no longer, you know what I'm saying? It's an amazing, um, it's one of the amazing facts that, you know, you see, when you live in a world of delusion and, and you have to push the current agenda, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to be honest, you're not allowed to understand things. So if you either believe in evolution or you're woke, you can't have an open mind and understand, you know, reality. But the Darach Hashem is explaining to us one of the basic facts of life, and that is there are 70 nations. Each nation has its own inclinations, its temperament, its almost, its you want to call it a personality, but certainly it's its own tchunas, its own type of way of doing things. And it means physically, but much more than that, morally and intellectually. And in any case, all the nations were set Adam Arishon was no longer to be the father because he didn't accomplish what he needed to. Avram Avinu was to be now the father of the Jewish nation. And it was only Avram's offspring that were fit to be the perfect person who would be fit for Olam Haba. So what happened at that point was Avram was the only person to be on that level. And anyone after him was a show, came from that Shorish his children were born very, very different than the Goyim. So, if you want to know if a Jew and a Goy are the same, they look the same, they may speak the same, but they're vastly, vastly different. And really, I'll give you a couple of interesting differences between them. What's it going to look like in a world to come? Let's talk about Olam and Hashemah, certainly Tchiyas Mason. What's it going to look like? So, there Hashem explains us, basically it's going to be a Jewish neighborhood. It's going to look kind of like, I don't know, Meishorim or uh, maybe a Philisteris or something. Basically, it's going to be all Jewish because Goyim really don't belong there. Now, there is a concept of Hasidei Umos Olam, a very righteous Gentile who keeps Zion Mitzvah's B'nai Noruch, also has a portion of the world to come. <clears throat> but as the Derech Hashem explains, it's in a very, very sort of peripheral way and he's not center, he's not really part of the action, he's sort of, I don't want to use the expression, excuse me for saying this way, but it's going to be a very very Jewish neighborhood with Spanish cleaning girls. It's, um, in other words, meaning the Gentile there will be an extremely peripheral role, and they're not center, they're, not as, they're nowhere near as integral, they're not part of the action, they're on the outside. The only exception is Hashem left open the door to anyone who wants to join under Avram Avinu's Line. So if a person is a Megayer, then they get the Neshama of a Jew, and then they have Olam Haba, as does a Jew. So one key distinction between a Jew and a Goy is are they prepared for Olam Haba? The Jew has a vastly different Neshama, the Jew has a vastly different, you know, his whole essence is different, and we're going to discuss soon enough what, in what way that manifests itself, but he's prepared for Lamahaba, regular a guy who either becomes exceptional, if he really, again, he keeps Zion or he's Megayer, he has a portion. Now, we had a fellow at our table who was 20 years of age and he was learning in Arasameach and he was studying for Geras. And my mother in law asked him, why, why do you want to become a Jew? Why do you want to become a Jew? And he said as follows He said, listen, I know I could be in the king's court, but I want to sit on the king's lap. In other words, the ability to be really close to Hashem, the ability to really have that portion in the world to come, exists for Jews, but not, does not exist for Goyim. 
unless a guy converts, he's again peripheral on the outside, far out there, but the Jews are, it's an old Jewish neighborhood. So what happened by Avram Avinu was, number one, he became the um, the father of the Jews. Now, a guy still has an neshama, and Derech Hashem explains that that does two things. Number one, that neshama obviously guides him to do what's right and what's proper. If he does what's right and proper, his this world, Olam Hazah, will be, will be better. And again, he has the opportunity to gain Olam Haba to a limited extent, but again, much more limited than a guy, but he still has an neshama, and in theory he could do it. Okay, so the first difference between Jews and Gentiles is in terms of the potential for Olam Haba. But there's another difference between a Jew and a Gentile that's much, much bigger. We discussed a number of shiurim ago, the fact that we are dramatically tied to the upper world, that every action that we do <coughs> creates malachim, changes the upper world. You know, we're, we're, a, 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 we're aware of a small part of an ashama. Maybe we're aware of the desire to grow, maybe we're aware of the intelligence, <coughs> but there are many, many parts of an ashama that are created strictly to impact the upper world. There's a lower neshama, there's an upper neshama, there are five parts to the upper neshama, but those parts of the upper neshama are created strictly to impact the upper world, and when we do what we're supposed to, we light up the upper world, we create cities, and if you remember the example of the nuclear reactor, I'm riding that bike, but that bike only creates, only churns out 100 watts, but that 100 watts is tied to a nuclear reactor, and that nuclear reactor churns out millions of kilowatts, that's what it's like when a Jew does what he's supposed to, uses this world properly. So it's my impact in the physical world is very limited, but I'm changing the upper world, I'm causing things to light up, I'm causing cities to light up. It's The impact is vast and incredible. That only happens with a Jew, it does not happen with a guy. If a guy does mitzvahs from today till tomorrow, he keeps saying mitzvahs, but with the absolute zealousy, he doesn't light up the upper world, it doesn't change things. But even more than that, Hashem's involvement in this world is directly dependent on what we, the Jews, do. If we <coughs> keep the Torah, then Hashem is much more present in the world, Hashem is much more apparent, Hashem is much more here. If we don't, Hashem is Masalik, Hashem leaves. Again, that impact is only the Jews, it's not by the Goyim. We do it, and we impact that, and the Goyim do not. So those are <coughs> two differences between <coughs> a Jew and a Goy. But the third difference is probably the biggest difference. And that is something called Ashkacha Pratis. Now, when Hashem created the 70 nations and locked them in, Hashem created 70 Sarim, 70 upper world powers to be in charge of the future of each of those nations. Um, each nation has their Sar take care of them, has their Sar do everything for them, but the nation is run by that Sar. That Sar is a Malach. We call it a superpower malach who sort of watches, but they do not have Ashkacha Pratis. Hashem keeps everything in existence, and Hashem oversees everything, but at the end of the day, that Tsar is responsible for that nation. Now, if you'd like to understand why a nation needs a Tsar, all you have to do is go to a, a symphony orchestra. To me, this is one of the greatest mashalim. I think, you know, one of the mistakes we make, we think that things just run on their own. You know, what, do you, what does a nation need a Tsar? What are, you know, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Koreans, uh, what, what do they need a, a superpower angel <coughs> there to make sure things happen? So if you'd like to understand how things really work, go to a symphony orchestra. And imagine you see 81 instruments, 
you know, the strings, the percussion, and everything is beautiful. But imagine that no one gave them sheet music, and there was no conductor. They wouldn't be beautiful music, they'd be chaos. What we don't understand is that for economies to work, for people to remain at peace, everything just happens, and we assume it's nature. We say, that's just natural, that's the way it is. But what we don't recognize is that there's a tremendous amount of supervision, guidance, a tremendous amount of making sure that things are as they should be, and somehow they work out. That somehow that they work out is there's a conductor. Each nation has its own conductor. It's a superpower malach. Make sure that this guy is here, this guy does this, this person gets along with that person, this person does that, so that the nation as a whole continues its path. The Jewish people do not have a sar. We have Hashem's direct involvement in our world. And what that means is Hashem himself directly supervises, directly involved in each and every one of our lives, orchestrating, making sure that exactly what's to happen, happens. Now, you may ask me, what is the difference between Hashkach HaPratis from Hashem and Asar? Is that a question that somebody's bothered by? Anybody bothered by that question? Sarim are pretty powerful, they're pretty wise, they're pretty good. So what do we... What's the big deal to have Hashkach HaPratis? Hashem can do absolutely anything. The Sar is still bound by whatever... It's true, but these sarim are pretty powerful, and and at the end of the day, Hashem empowers the sar to take care of its nation and and have them do what they're supposed to do. So why is it better to have Hashem? Okay, so it's really it's a really facetious question, but I'll give you an illustration of what it means to have Hashem on our side as opposed to a sar. So here's just an observation. As a child, I remember seeing the Encyclopedia Judaica. It's a 26-volume uh, English uh, encyclopedia. For those people who remember encyclopedias, remember what they are? Encyclopedia Britannica, right? Okay, an encyclopedia. So basically, let's imagine Encyclopedia Britannica. It, that's also about 28 volumes. I forgot what it is exactly. But it's, it's, again, volumes and volumes about world history. There are encyclopedias written about the accomplishments of civilization over the millennium. Well, what's interesting to note is that the Encyclopedia Judaica is about one nation only, the Jewish people. 26 volumes, and if you read the accomplishments, famous Jews, influential Jews, powerful Jews, rich Jews, but page after page, now from 1973 to 1982, there were supplements. Each year had a full book of hundreds of pages of the accomplishments of Jews. 25,000 articles. I mean, it's, it's beyond belief because, you see, the Jewish people aren't that big. The Jewish people are not, you know, when you tell me that you have a, uh, you know, the, the Chinese, 1.5 billion people, the Muslims, 1.2 billion people. How many Jews are there? So in the world, they say 15 million, 14.5 million, but not a lot of Jews. <clears throat> okay, but here's the point. If you <clears throat> note the Jewish contribution to culture, science, technology, to anything in civilization, it's nothing short of astonishing. If you look in academics, <clears throat> politics, media professions, from curing polio to discovering atomic energy, from Hollywood to Wall Street, in every field, Jews excel. Art, theater, science, economy, political, medical, legal fields. But <clears throat> if you take a list of the most famous Jews, it's beyond description. Let me share with you an example. 20% of professors at leading universities are Jewish. 40% of partners leading law firms in New York and Washington are Jewish. 
Forbes published the roster of American wealthiest people. Now, this is um, this is 2018's wealthiest list, but it's not much different now. But in any case, of the top ten, five were Jewish. That means of America's top richest people, five out of ten were Jewish. A fellow Mark Zuckerberg, you may have heard of, uh, about uh, Oracle's Larry Elson's number five, Google's co-founder Larry Page, um, Segri Brin. These are guys who are worth... Um, Here's what's even more amazing. Forbes list of 400 richest American men, of them in the top 130 of the 400 richest Americans are Jewish. Um, in the top 100, there's one black, four Indians, six Asians, 34 women, and 30 Jews. Um, but okay, so you tell me Jews are rich. Okay, but what about Nobel Prize winners? So <clears throat> Nobel Prize... Nobel Prize is given as the, um, it's really the mark of the person who conferred the greatest benefit to mankind in its field. And it's done in quite a number of fields. It's in, it's in chemistry, it's in uh, uh, the different fields uh, of economics, chemistry, medicine, physics. Okay, so what percentage of Nobel Prize winners are Jewish? So in the United States of America, uh, 37% of Nobel Prize winners in the 20th century were awarded to Jews, 37%. Now, Jews make up what percentage of U.S. population? So let's assume there's 7.5 million Jews in America. That's, it might be generous, but let's assume that's true. So if there are 330 million people, we make up about 2% maximum of the U.S. population. Yet, we don't win 2% of the Nobel Prizes, 37% of the United States Nobel Prizes. But it's harder still. From 1901 to 2006... If you look at the Nobel Prizes won worldwide, 23% were won by Jews. Now, here's the odd part. How many people are there in the world? Anyone have a figure? A bunch, I'm sorry? Billions? 7.8 billion, something like that. How many Jews are there in the world? So, again, somewhere, let's assume 15 million at this point. Now, so if we have um, 7.8 billion people if there were 78 million Jews, we'd be 1% of the world population. But there aren't 78 million Jews. There's only 15 million Jews. So we're a quarter of 1% of the world population, and yet 23% of Nobel Prizes are won by Jews. That's a bit odd. But let's look at some other stats because it's very interesting. Um, this is, by the way, this is throughout history. You know, in the late Middle Ages, the Jews numbered 1% of Europe's population, yet they were half of the physicians. Um, and during the great expulsions of the, Jew, you know, the Jews in the 1930s, the medical centers of Vienna and Berlin, they lost half of their physicians. Now, there were very few Jews. I can't, contrary to popular belief, there were not many Jews living in Germany. If you had half a million, it was maximum. Yet, when they kicked the Jews out, half of the doctors were gone. Most of the medical school faculties um, but here's, let's, here's, by the way, chess is not very Jewish. Okay, of the 51 highest ranked players in history, one half were Jewish. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Bobby Fischer, who is a ganz fine anti-Semite, he's Jewish, of course, <clears throat> when he ranked the top five players uh, in history, and he was one of them, <clears throat> three out of five were Jewish. But let's look at something called Jewish Winners of U.S. National Medal of Science. Now, there's nothing Jewish about science, yet the U.S. National Medal of Science, 30%, 37% of 
of the recipients of that medal are Jewish. <clears throat> the U.S. Academy of Science, which is considered like the elite, uh, you know, in science. So in medicine, 33% are Jewish. Physics, 40% are Jewish. Psychology, 40% are Jewish. Economics, 40% are Jewish. Mathematics, 50% are Jewish. <clears throat> Jews ranked amongst the 100 most eminent psychologists of the 20th century, 37%. I mean, 37% of the top psychologists in the 20th century were Jewish. Um, computer and information science, 40% of the U.S. National Academies of Science winners are Jewish. Um, it, just the, the the numbers of accomplishments, and, and it's everything. You see, I know Jews make a lot of money, but we're talking about every facet of civilization, every advancement, every science, from theater to Hollywood to, you know, one second, how about music? Now, there's nothing very Jewish about music, but here's... Of the 100 leading virtuoso performers of the 20th century, approximately two-thirds of the violinists are Jewish. Half of the cellists are Jewish. 40% of the pianists are Jews. Now, what's Jewish about a piano or cello or violin? So why are they so darn good at it? And if you look at anything from popular culture, look at the list of Jewish-American actors, list of Jewish-American writers, the Jewish-American artists, they lead every single category in every single area. Um, for those who remember ancient history, the Warner Brothers, Marx Brothers, Milton Berle, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, with Jewish hippies, you had social leaders, you had leftists and political leaders. It seems like every single facet of civilization, their leaders are, are Jewish, and there doesn't seem to be any explanation for it. Um, so let's try to answer the question. Why is it? Why is it that Jews seem to lead every advancement, every accomplishment in civilization. So let's start with the word smart idea. Now it is true that Jews are smart. Um, on average, the um, Ashkenazic Jews are on average a three-quarters to one standard deviation above European averages on IQ tests. But the problem is there are a lot of smart people in the world, and a lot of people who are smart don't amount to much. So maybe you tell me, well, Jews are very educated. Now it is true that Jews are generally more educated, 55% of Jewish adults 18 years or older have a bachelor's degree, and 25% of Jewish people have a master's degree, which is sort of, there's a twice the national average of undergrad and four times the national average of graduate degrees. But again, that doesn't account for accomplishments across the gamut of activities. And here's really the point. If you don't get the punchline yet, these accomplishments that we're describing are not in Gemara. They're not in Halacha. 90% of our people are incredibly assimilated, meaning those cellists, those pianists, the winners of the awards in medicine, in chemistry, the Nobel laureates, are not from Jews. What that means is they're culturally, educationally identical to the Gentiles they live amongst. 90% of our people know nothing about Judaism other than maybe matzah ball on Pesach and a Hanukkah menorah that's electric, you light it, but they're not Jewish. So what about the Jewish nation is it that has them excel? And it's sort of like, I think the, probably the best line I, I, I think that sums it up is, the Italians came to this country and formed the mob. The Irish came to this country and became cops and drunks. And the Jews came to this country and took over every institution known to civilization. And the question is, gee golly, why? And the Chobos of Ovas explains to us the answer. And the answer is because we are God's people. 
because God wants us to be at the forefront. Believe me, it is not of major interest and is not a major accomplishment who wins which Nobel Prize in terms of the big picture issues of life. It's not why Hashem created the world and not why we're here. But nevertheless, Hashem says, it's my people, I want them to be the leaders, I want them to be on the forefront. And if you want to know who's going to come out with which invention, who's going to write which Nobel Prize you know, a, a paper, which novel that's going to become a fantastic bestseller, it's going to be the Jewish people because we are Hashem's Amskula, you're my nation and Hashem guides us. And let me explain to you why this is a huge chiddish, because these are things that really don't have that much consequence. Um, again, we were not created for our position in this world. We're here for a few short years. And these things, in the big picture scheme of things, really don't matter. But Hashem says, nevertheless, I want the Jewish people to be the leaders. If there's something that has to be discovered, <clears throat> something that has to be brought out, I want my people, because Hashem leads us, Hashem wants us, even if you're assimilated, if you're not, you're part of the nation, and you're, you're part of it, and Hashem wants it to continue, and Hashem wants that to go forth. Is that um, astonishing? I, I, when, I, when I think about that, to me, it's one of those, like, wow. Um, again, because there's nothing Jewish. Uh, I promise you, Bach and Beethoven, the music, it's not very Jewish. Um, there are a couple of Russian composers who chazanim, you know, have cantorial music in it, but there's nothing really Jewish about the... You know, the symphonic music, or you know, so why do Jews excel in it? Why are Jews the inventors? Why are Jews the the leaders in every field? And the answer is just because we're Hashem's nation. Hashem wants us. Hashem leads us, and this is ultimately what Hashem wants. And uh, and again, this is in things that are so inconsequential, so unimportant. Yet this is what Hashem wants because we're Hashem's people, and that's that's again to me, it's one of the most eye-opening and enlightening. Um, Concepts. All right. Questions, thoughts, observations? Okay. Quick recap. Okay. So again, when Hashem created Adam, Adam was near perfect. He was supposed to reach a certain level of perfection and in that level then have children and he was to be the progenitor, the father of humanity. He blew it and no longer was he able to be the father. This Hashem allowed the various nations to try, the various people to try, no one reached that level except for Avram. At the door of Aflaga, the nations were set. They were sealed, their their future was sealed, it was sort of put into concrete. At that level then, whatever they were set at, they have children, and their children continue in their way, the same temperament, same inclination, morally, ethically, whatever their, that nature is. The Jewish people alone, whether it's the, the sons of Avram, have the ability to be truly close to Hashem. They have an Hashem that's very different. Again, a guy has an Hashem which allows him to succeed in this world, and in theory, he can gain Olam Haba, again, peripherally, because the world to come is a Jewish neighborhood. The Gentiles have the ability to become peripherally there, or if they're Megayer, they come under Avram Avinu's sort of flag, then in fact they can hook in. But certainly in terms of a neshama that's worthy, ready, prime for Olam Haba, it's only the Jewish neshama, not the neshama of, uh, of the Gentiles. The second distinction between a Jew and a Goy is the difference of lighting up, changing the upper worlds. In other words, the Jewish neshama is tied to the upper worlds and it causes things to change there in major ways, in ways that we're totally clueless to. 
It also, the neshama of the Jew, greatly impacts how involved Hashem is in the world, how much Hashem manifests himself, how much Hashem does manifest itself. Meaning, if we do what we're supposed to, Mashiach comes right away. If the Goyim do what they're supposed to, it doesn't change things in any sense. But the third element, the distinction between the Jewish nation and every other nation, is the fact that we have Hashem as our direct guide. Hashem Zashkach, Hashem guides us directly. And that distinction is probably the biggest in terms of Rachamim, in terms of, you know, meaning to say, in big picture issues, learning, davening, being an Ebed Hashem, we get tremendous, tremendous Seat HaShemayah because Hashem wants our success. We're Hashem's nation, we're Hashem's beloved, we're Hashem's Bani Matem L'Hashem Lekecha, your children to Hashem. So, in other words, if Jews get that kind of success in in things that really don't matter, in things of this world that are passing and fleeting, how much more so in things that really matter, we get direct Seat HaShemayah from Hashem. And ultimately, that's the, the advantage of uh, of being a Jew. So there's a pro-Jewish um, rally. Yay, yay, go. Um, I mean, anyway, we know that like the only way that Hashem's presence is known in this world is because we're serving Him. So even if someone is not affiliated, just by the fact of being called a Jew, people think about us. So therefore, it makes sense that any Jew would be successful even if they're not, you know, necessarily from, because just being a Jew is what brings Hashem's recognition. Oh, you mean it becomes like a Kiddush Hashem? And, and, no uh, right. I hear, by the way, in Korea, you know, one of the most popular books? Gemara. Talmud. Yeah. Talmud. Art scroll in Korean. <laughs> They, they, because they find it challenging. No, because Jews are cool. <laughs> they know, like, there's something. You know, by the way, I, I, every once in a while, if you meet somebody from way out there, what's about you Jews? They're so successful. You're so everything you guys do, you do. Is that why they hate us? Yeah. Um, no, they hate us for a different reason. That's that's Xerus Acosta. That Hashem uses the guy to keep the Jew doing. <clears throat> what we're supposed to do as as the who was it? Some mind to said it the line that if you if the Jew doesn't make kiddush, the guy makes avdallah. Uh, said that. Um, meaning a big part of the reason why Hashem has anti-Semitism because it keeps us where we're supposed to be. Unfortunately, we often need that. But the point is that that the Jews are like they excel in every area and everything they do. They're like so. Look at any area in, in in civilization, and you find Jewish leaders, and, and it's beyond beyond description. All right, um, one second. So this is a local question. Someone typed in a question from Muncie. Do we do we answer it? Mm-hmm. All right. If Hashem's plan was that Adam was supposed to reach a level of perfection, wouldn't he have reached it? It seems that Hashem did not want Adam to succeed. Okay, so I, I guess so. We discussed this in one of the previous classes that is. What we call Plan A and Plan B. <clears throat> plan A was Adam Arishon as he was. Um, plan B is the world as we are, are now. Now, there's a big advantage to Plan B that doesn't exist in Plan A. You see, in Plan A, there's no shoulder to the road. In Plan, just give me, I'll, I'll break, I'll shut it off. Yeah, I'll break it. Yeah. <clears throat> in in Plan A, there's no shoulder to the road, meaning. Any slip up, any slight mishap, and and it's over because you see, other nation had such clarity of vision, such understanding that there was no no mitigating circumstances, no mitigating reasons, and the proof of the pudding is one sin, and he literally <clears throat> destroyed the world. 
Now, if Hashem created the world in plan A, what would have happened is there would have been a few tzaddikim, a very few tzaddikim who would have made it, but the vast, vast majority of people would not have succeeded. So plan B is far advantageous. Why? Because in plan B, there's plenty of shoulder on the road. When you put man in a state of stupor, drunkenness and confusion, there's plenty of mitigating circumstances, plenty of reasons why I messed up. There's room for tshuva, there's room for improvement. You can spend 10 years and waste your time and then still Hashem waits because, listen, Nebuch, the poor guy, was drunk. So plan B is much more advantageous in the sense that uh, many more people will succeed. Maybe not reach the highest level, but certainly succeed far more than with plan A. But here's the problem. Plan B has an awful lot of pain, a lot of tsaras, a lot of things, and Hashem is a native. Hashem can't create an imperfect world with so much pain and suffering. Hashem created Adam Rishon with plan A, knowing full well that Adam would sin. Ah, Baruch Hashem said, now we can do plan B, which is much better um, in terms of what Hashem ultimately wanted. Does that, does that make sense? If that makes sense, type in that it makes sense, please. If not, type that it doesn't. Um, okay. Um, okay. Um, um, to type Somebody typed in a... Oh, okay, look at this. Someone typed in um, <coughs> Father George B. Kaufman. This is a woman listening to Shia typed in her father is a non-religious uh, Jew. A tribute to him, George B. Kaufman, internationally known chemist, professor, and mentor to many, dies at 89. And here's a, a he was a professor of chemistry, California State University, <clears throat> until his retirement. And he was a person of tremendous accomplishments, the amount of honors that he won. He was very active at General Electric and uh, program chairman and uh, CVS, ACS Division of History of Chemistry, editor of History of Chemistry series a whole long page of his accomplishments. Um, why? Because he was Jewish. Now, why did why did he succeed to such extent and so many other Gentiles didn't? Again, for one reason, because that's what uh, that's what Hashem wanted. Okay, any questions, please feel free to type them in. Ladies here, have any questions, please feel free to ask them. You can raise your hand if you're shy. You can type it in, but if you're brave, you could raise your hand and ask the question. Um, and again, we even take questions from people who live in Muncie and are attending via Zoom and not live. Okay, all right, if no one else has questions, then, uh, so again, please feel free to, if you're interested in joining the Shmooze WhatsApp group, three, four times a week, we send out these short uh, videos, inspirational videos. Just go to theshmooze.com and you'll see a place to sign up. Also, if you've not gotten a copy of the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes that smart, very smart couples make, Please go to theshmooze.com. Actually, you could go to your local farm store or Amazon, but if you go to theshmooze.com, you'll also get the audiobook, ebook, as well as marriage transformation boot camp as a free bonus. Theshmooze.com, T H E S H M U Z.com. Thank you very much. Have a good week. And ladies, thank you for listening. Our father read through almost.